1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Well, the verses we read talk about the very heart of the Bible, the very heart and central theme of the gospel. Being able to summarize something is a sign of comprehension. If you if you have a large subject or something that's very complex with many parts, but you can break it down in a simple way and summarize it for someone to understand, it's a sign that you understand that subject. Have you ever met somebody and they say, well, you know, I I know what this is about, but I just can't really put it into words for you. Usually that's a sign they don't really understand it like they should. Or have you ever seen someone maybe that's from a Christian family and they make a profession of faith and one of their family members or one of their friends says, you know, they're just not really able to put it into words, but I think they really believe. They can't really say it so much for themselves, but I think they really understand it deep inside. Sometimes that's a sign that they don't understand it yet. What we have here in these verses is a summary of the very heart of the gospel. Look again in verse 1. This is what the Bible's all about. This is the good news. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. So this is the very message that Paul went around preaching. Paul, who was appointed by Jesus Christ himself to be a messenger, to be the apostle to the Gentiles, he knew the message. And he says, I'm going to remind you of it. And he's going to do it in a very short summary form. The gospel I preached to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. This is what I preached when I came. I'm going to say it again. You all received this. You believe this. You must hold to this. You must know this and comprehend it. There must not be any confusion. Verse 3, For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received. This was the message I also heard. This was the message that was revealed even to me. Paul didn't create it. He received it as well. And here it is. This is the message that does not change. This is the good news in all of the Bible. That Christ died for our sins 
in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We're going to stop there. He goes on to talk about Christ appearing to the different apostles, different people. But here is how he sums it up. This is the good news. This is the message he preached. This is the message you need to hear and receive in order to be right with God. This is what the Bible's all about. Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. This is the core. This is the center, not just of the New Testament. Because those words in accordance with the scriptures, what does that mean? That's referring to the Old Testament scriptures. Whether you're reading the Old Testament or the New Testament, every page of the Bible is about this one thing. Christ died for our sins and he rose from the grave. That's the heart of it. That's the central message. And that's what every person needs to hear and needs to believe and receive. That's... That's our great need in life, to hear this message, to know what it means, and to receive it. Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection, that's the good news. The good news is not about us, what we do. The good news is something that happened in history 2,000 years ago when Jesus died and when he rose again. So let's look at this in two parts. First, the death of Jesus Christ. He says, accordance with the scriptures, meaning it was foretold long ago. It was prophesied that this would happen. They were waiting for this event. They knew it would be good when it would happen. They had news of it. Where do we read this in the Old Testament? Where do we read that Christ would die for our sins. Can you think of a verse? Somebody throw out a verse. Isaiah 53. Okay, need to go no further. That's probably the most famous, perhaps the most clear verse about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Now listen, it is pictured, it is shown in so many places in the Old Testament, in the types and the shadows, in the sacrifices, in in sometimes even the commandments and the laws, that there must be a death for sin. And that one day, God would answer this problem, send His Son, His servant, to die for sin. Turn to Isaiah 53. We're going to read verse 5 and 6. Now this is simple. Even children can understand this. So I hope you children are listening. Isaiah 53, verse 5. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
So in verse 5, he's saying, this one, this servant of God, this anointed one, he was wounded for our transgressions. That just means sins. Christ died for our sins. He was wounded for our sins. The next part, he was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement or the punishment that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. Not because of what we've done. Verse 6 says, we have gone astray. We have done those sins. Those sins were from our life. Everyone has turned away from God. Everyone has turned to his own way, the way of selfishness, the way of pride. And yet, the Lord has done something good. The Lord has done something merciful in spite of our disobedience. He has laid on him, on Jesus Christ, the iniquity of us all. This is sin being laid on a substitute, just like the picture of sin being put upon the animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. When was this fulfilled? Well, let's read the account. Turn to Matthew 27, and we'll see this prophecy fulfilled. This was good news 700 years before Christ came and did what it said he would do. But let's read it again. Matthew 27. We're not going to read the whole account of the crucifixion, but we will read verse 45 and following. Spurgeon said, if you're lost and you want to be saved and you're struggling to be saved, he said, you need to read the crucifixion account every day. Why would he say that? Because he's trying to point you to the good news of Jesus' death. His death is good news. Look at verse 45. We're skipping, we're just jumping right in. They have mocked him and beaten him and insulted him. The people are calling out, taunting him that he might come down from the cross, that he might save himself. The people that are passing by and the priests and the rulers and the soldiers, even the thieves that are crucified with him, all of them are taunting him, calling out, save yourself. But that's just the build-up. You can tell when you read the crucifixion account, starting in verse 45 is the climax. This is, when you, this is not just the time of his death. This is when it really gets heavy, when it really gets important that every word and every line we need to read slowly. Look at verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. We'll stop there. I read here four amazing things that happened at the time of Jesus' death. The first is the darkness in verse 45. It's the middle of the day, and yet the sky grows dark. The second is what he cries out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The third, we find in verse 50, he cries out again with a loud voice. And the last, in verse 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two. So I want us to slowly consider what's happening here. You can read the crucifixion account and miss all of the glory unless you stop and think. First, the sky grew dark. I bet no one expected that. That day when they taunted him, when they mocked him, when they nailed him to the cross, no one thought the sky would grow dark. A darkness over all the land. And I think it was like the darkness, the plague of Egypt, a darkness that could be felt, a darkness that was very dark. For three hours... You don't read them mocking him anymore in that dark time. Something is getting serious and heavy. Something supernatural. What is this amazing darkness? When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was nailed to the cross, the sky grew dark. Why? Well, if you read through the Scriptures, darkness is often associated with judgment. When God comes... To judge sin, it gets dark. A dark day, a dark and gloomy time when His presence and His anger and His wrath and His punishment come. Often throughout the prophets you read, it is a dark day, a day of darkness. And that's what was happening upon the cross. Because, as Isaiah foretold, Jesus Christ was dying for our sins. God must judge those sins that He put upon Christ. And the sky grew dark as a witness, as a testimony of what was happening. We see the next thing that happens is Jesus, as if to make it crystal clear, if there's any doubt of what that darkness might mean, He Himself says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is amazing. Don't think that Jesus Christ was confused when he said these words. He was not confused. It's a question, but actually it's a quotation. He's quoting Psalm 22 a thousand years before he would, was ever crucified. These words were written about the one that would suffer for our sins, about the one whose hands and feet would be pierced for our sake. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not saying this in a whisper of despair. God, why have you abandoned me? My life is a failure. He was crying out with a loud voice. So everyone would hear him. So they would all know what's happening. Why the sky is growing dark. Why he's hanging on the cross for three hours. So that there would be no confusion. And today, I cry out with my voice. That it would be clear in your mind. Jesus Christ was forsaken upon the cross. What does that word mean, forsaken? It means he became a curse. It means that very judgment, that very punishment 
that very wrath of God for our sins at that time was coming upon him as was prophesied long ago and he's announcing it to everyone. Now this in and of itself is not good news. This would be terrifying if you were the one with the dark cloud over you. If you were the one whom God was forsaking. This darkness we find often described about hell. Hell sometimes is said to be a place of fire, a furnace of fire. But hell is also described as the outer darkness. The gloom of darkness. No light. No joy. Cut off from the good presence of God, cut off from the love of God, cut off from the blessings of God, removed from His presence, forsaken, abandoned, cast out. And that's what Jesus Christ was experiencing at this time. Now, I do not mean to depreciate or devalue the things leading up to this point. His physical suffering the torment and the mocking that he endured from his own creation. He came to his own and they knew him not and they spit upon him and they hated him and they wanted to crush him and kill him. But like I said, this is a climax and now we're reaching a point where he's not saying, oh man, oh mankind, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The hardest thing about the cross, the most terrifying, the most awful thing, the the worst judgment was not any stroke that came from man. It was the stroke that came from God, His justice against our sin was given to Jesus Christ. This in and of itself would not be good news that God would destroy His Son, that God would come with His wrath upon His Son, the the very same darkness, the very same anguish that we deserve in hell would fall upon Jesus Christ. But it's not finished. He says, why have you forsaken me? But look at the next thing. This is amazing. They mock Him some more. They are totally clueless at this point as to what's happening. Look in verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up His Spirit. Before He died, something else amazing happened. He cried out with a loud voice. What did He cry out? It is finished. Isn't this interesting? It's not written here. Almost as if to put a question in your mind. What did he cry out? And praise the Lord that we have four Gospels. They all fit together. There's no doubt about what he cried out again with a loud voice. Now, probably the very last thing he said before he died was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But I want to I bring to light this statement. It is finished. Why? Because if he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in the beginning of this darkness? And then at the end of it, he can say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. What happened in between? First, he's saying, God, you've forsaken me. Now he's saying, Father, I I trust my soul to you. You have not forsaken me. 
Because in between, he said, it is finished. You know, we remember the dying words of a person. If you're ever at someone's deathbed and they tell you something right before they die, you never forget. It sticks in your mind. The words of Jesus Christ as he was dying are golden for us. This is the good news. That he could say, my father... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Something happened there. The same sin that was placed upon Christ, that he was being punished for, that he took his stripes for, that he was being crushed under this darkness, this wrath of God, was finished. You know, I think there is something mysterious about the cross. But I do believe that the wrath of God in a very real way came upon Jesus Christ. I don't just think the physical sufferings. Why? If you read the Old Testament, if you read the book of Psalms, if you read Job, if you read Lamentations, there are statements there that fit no man about God's wrath. Wave after wave, all your waves have washed over me. You have sent a fire from on high into my bones, Lamentation says. Job says, you set me as your target and all of your arrows hit me. These things, they're not talking about David and Job and Jeremiah. They're talking about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is about Christ And when he was suffering in the dark on the cross, the very same judgment that we would receive. Listen, you need to know the judgment of God is not just death in the body. It is death eternal in hell. That same judgment Jesus Christ took in himself. How does it work? I have no idea. It is a mystery, but it is real. It may be something that we cannot wrap our minds around. It may be something that we are only getting glimpses of in Scripture. But there is no suffering like the suffering of Christ. The Son of God became a substitute for a world of sin. But then he cries out, it is finished. And that is good news. Jesus Christ did not just suffer under the wrath of God. He finished the wrath of God. I love in the book of Revelation, you read the bowls of wrath are being poured out upon the earth. And at one point it says, in these the wrath of God is finished. That's what happened at the cross. For everyone that takes refuge in Jesus Christ, the wrath of God for you has been finished. It has, the debt has been paid. There is a satisfaction. It is enough. And that's good news. It means the wrath of God is gone. When it's finished, it's no more. When it's finished, the fear is removed. The judgment has disappeared. Jesus Christ has satisfied God's judgment on our behalf. And if that's not clear, Look at what happens next. The fourth amazing thing. Verse 51. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. I love that God, for our feeble minds, paints these pictures physically. He puts the darkness on the cross to show that the wrath of God was coming upon Jesus Christ. 
He shakes the earth and tears the veil of the temple to show it is finished. What was the veil? What is the curtain in the temple? You all know, surely. A huge, massive veil, perhaps 50 feet high. Think of like a theater, a stage. You know, they have these thick curtains that are drawn between the acts. The intermission, the curtains drawn. Huge curtain blocking the way to God. No sinner can enter there. No sinner can go to heaven. No sinner can be the friend of God. God is not the friend of sin. God cannot look on sin. We can't approach God. He dwells in in unapproachable light, purity, holiness, goodness, all the things we want but we don't have. But Jesus Christ, He gave the answer. He solved the problem that no man can solve. He answered for our sins to God and He finished it at the cross. And He cries out with a loud voice and we read these words and I cry it out today. It is finished. He finished this judgment, this punishment for sin. And now the way is open. Look, the reason why we can't approach God is because of our sin. But if someone has answered for our sins, paid for our sins, washed our sins away, then we can be the friends of God. We can be the children of God. That which we were made to be. That which people feel deep in their hearts. Unexplainably, I'm here. Life has meaning. Life has a purpose. Because you were made for God. You were made to know Him. You were made to have fellowship with Him. And Jesus Christ has opened the way for all sinners to go back to God. No more separation between God in His holiness and man in His sinfulness and weakness. This is good news. This is good news because it means the very worst of people who have done the worst of sins, the most shameful sins, can be saved, can be washed, can fellowship with their Creator, can have eternal life, cannot go to hell when they die, but worship God forever in heaven. And throughout this life, the way has been opened in Jesus Christ. When was it open? 2,000 years ago, the debt was paid at the cross. The way is open for all to go in, for sinners to become the friends of God. And that's good news. Think about the cross in that light. The Son of God goes to the cross, suffers in the dark, cries out, God, you have forsaken me. But when, when the time has come, when he paid the price, he said, it is finished. And now the veil is removed. It's torn in two. That is the good news of the death of Jesus Christ. That's what we hope in. Think of the resurrection. Let's shift gears. The resurrection is a part of the gospel message. It's good news. It is really good news. Three days later, what happened? Now, his in the body, Jesus Christ died. He did not die in the spirit, but his body as a man really died and was really laid in a tomb. Okay, if you would have been there on day one or day two, he would have really been dead. They had to carry him. They had to wrap him. They had to seal that tomb with a stone. That's true. But as the scriptures foretold, he would rise again. Where did the scriptures ever say that? Where does the Old Testament say 
that the Son of God would rise again? Anyone? Can you think of a verse? What Old Testament verse says the resurrection is going to happen? There's some good news. Brother? Exactly. Psalm 16. Let's look. This is quoted in the New Testament, so we have no problem identifying this verse for what it really is. Psalm 16. Written by David. Concerning David, but maybe not concerning David. Verse 10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. You see what this is? This is a prophecy, again, a thousand years before Jesus ever came. Good news that God's servant, God's anointed one, His Messiah, the true King, would never die. God loved him so much, he would not let him see corruption. He would not let him be held in the power of the grave and death. In fact, what would he do? Verse 11, he would make known to him the path of life. He would raise him from the dead. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And you know what I believe? Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. That in the Spirit, he was in the presence of God with great joy. Just as the priest offers the offering upon the altar, but then he carries it into the holy place. So the book of Hebrews says, that cross was his altar, but he carried it into the true holy place. The holy place in heaven. The heavenly tabernacle. After making his sacrifice and saying it is finished, he ascended up in the Spirit to present his offering before God with great joy. The thief would have been there that day. In your presence there is fullness of joy. And look, we even have a verse about the ascension of Christ. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Now that didn't happen until about 40 days later. But Jesus Christ he would not only go in the Spirit, but glorified in the body with a great triumph to the very right hand of God. That's what verse 11 is talking about. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of God, having finished His work. This is good news. Why is it good news? Well, let's look at when it was fulfilled. Turn with me to Luke's Gospel now. It was prophesied this would happen. Jesus said it was going to happen. He said, they will, they will curse me, they will kill me, but on the third day I will rise again. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. He said, I'll show you the greatest sign you'll ever see, the sign of Jonah. Jesus read the Old Testament. He knew what that was about. He knew, I'm Jonah. And just like Jonah went down for three days and came out, I'm going into the grave and I'm going to come out. I'm going to show myself and they're going to be amazed. Look at this. Luke 24. Verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb. They thought Jesus is 
lying there dead. And they're going to graciously put spices on his body. They went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Where's his body? These are the women. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, angels. And they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground. The men said to them, These men are shining. They say to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? Jesus Christ is the living one. Why are you here? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. He said this would happen. On the third day he would rise again. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. They, they told him, he's not there. The angel said he's risen. This is just like what he told us in the past. But these words seemed to them an idle tale. These are the apostles, an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb. So Peter has an inkling of something. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. We're going to skip the Emmaus Road account. There are many accounts of Jesus Christ appearing to individuals, to groups. Even 1 Corinthians 15, if you read it, it says that he appeared to Peter. Not all of this is recorded. But look down in verse 36. After this appearance to these men going to Emmaus, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, among the apostles, and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved, for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. This good news, it had to happen. I told you about this. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, 
and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. They returned to Jerusalem and they had some good news. Good news for people in Jerusalem. Good news for people in Samaria. Good news for people to all the nations. That he really atoned for sin upon the cross. That he really mastered and conquered death. Set us free from the fear of death. That he himself has life over death. And gives it to those who turn to him. With this good news, they return great joy. Blessing God, worshiping God day by day for this good news. They saw him on the cross. They saw him risen again. This is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus died for our sins. And that he was raised on the third day. Think about it. He says, peace be to you. And he appears to them. Peace. No more wrath. No more fear. No more doubts. Why are you doubting? Peace. I have the keys of death and hell. I'm alive forevermore. Yes, I'm in a body, but a glorified body. I'm ascending to my Father. He went up in their very sight. That would speak peace to them. No more fear of death. No more fear of the grave. Death is not the end for the Christian. Now listen. What I've said so far, this is really the core message. This is what you need to comprehend. If you sum up Christianity some other way than Jesus Christ, Him crucified, risen from the dead, you've summed it up wrong. This is the heart of it, not about us. Not primarily about man's responsibility. That is not the gospel. The gospel is something that happened 2,000 years ago. The good news is already finished. We can't change it. It will always be good news. You can't mess it up. That there's a way to be free from sin. And there's a way to live forever and never die and go to heaven with Christ. Now, some of you know this and you treasure it. And you believe it and you love it. And it is the core of your being now. When God saved you, that message took hold of you. You can never escape it. You don't want to escape it. It is your hope, your joy. And that's good. That's why Paul is reminding them of the gospel he preached and saying, hold fast to this gospel. But some of you and some people, many people, especially in this land, know it. And they believe it in a sense, but they don't truly believe it. And it is not their treasure and it is not their hope. It is dangerous to know the facts of the gospel without truly receiving the gospel. And many do this. If you know the gospel, that is not enough. You must receive the gospel. What do I mean? Think of it like a a storm shelter and a big storm is coming an earthquake or a tornado or a hurricane, so devastating it's going to wipe out everything and everyone. But there is a shelter that's large and strong. And if you go there, you'll be saved. You won't be harmed at all. 
You'll be totally at peace when this, when this storm passes by. Think of a man who knows of the shelter but doesn't go in. He knows it's big. He knows it's strong. He knows why it's necessary, but he doesn't go in. Many people are like that with Jesus Christ. They have learned about his death. They have learned about his resurrection, but they don't truly entrust themselves to it. In fact, it is possible to say, I believe, and to know the facts of the gospel and actually be insulting the very sacrifice of Jesus Christ and insulting the resurrection of Jesus Christ with your life, with your words. What do I mean? His death is insulted by many people who say they believe his death. How is that? How, how can you insult the death of Christ? You add to it. You add your works to it. And many people do that. They say, oh, I believe Jesus died for sins. But really deep down in their hearts, what they're thinking about, what they're worrying about is themselves and their works. Catholics, what do they add to Jesus Christ? They add Mary. They add the Pope. They add confession. They add the Mass. Christ died on the cross, and we Catholics believe that. But you also have to go to this man. You have to pray to this woman. You have to take this Mass in order to be saved. And so they add to the Gospel. The Church of Christ, what do they add? Many of you know this. You've, you have acquaintances and friends that are Church of Christ. They add baptism. Yes, Jesus died on the cross, but you need this baptism in order to be forgiven of your sins. And they insult the death of Christ as if it did not have the power to save, as if it was not enough. Mormons, what are they at? If any of you are Mormon here, I was having a conversation with some Mormons recently in Austin, Texas, two Mormon lady missionaries. And we got to talk, and finally, it was real confusing. Finally, at the end of it, I said, look, I have Christ. What else do I need? What do you have that I need? What do you have that I don't have if I have Christ and I have his death on the cross? And they said, well, you need our priesthood and you need our baptism. Look, you don't need anything other than Christ. The gospel was accomplished by Jesus Christ when he died on the cross and he rose again. Southern Baptists, what do they add? I grew up Southern Baptist. Oh, they add. There is something. Many Southern Baptist churches, many Baptist preachers, they add the prayer. The prayer. And it is sad, but it is true. You can take any good thing, and if you make it central, and you make it the message, and you make it the big point, you have replaced Christ. The Jews did it with circumcision. You can do it with praying a prayer, repeating the sinner's prayer, with walking an aisle, with tithing, with anything, even good things. If you add them to Christ, if you make them. Now, let me, let me use a word here that might help you. We say believe, believe in Jesus Christ. Well, do you believe in Jesus Christ or do you believe in the sinner's prayer? Let me use a different word. Trust. 
Let me use a better word. Lean. Do you lean upon Christ and his death on the cross or do you lean upon the sinner's prayer? Because I know many people, they will lean upon the sinner's prayer. No, I know I'm saved because I prayed the sinner's prayer. I know I'm saved because I was baptized. I know I'm saved because I, I go to Mass or I do this confession. Whatever you lean upon, that is your gospel. Whatever at the very core of your heart, really when you get laid low, you're holding to, you're clinging to, that is your gospel. But the gospel is not about us at all. Praise God, the gospel is far outside of us. It's the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our prayers, our evangelism, our tithing, our whatever we do, as good as it may be, will never save our souls. We'll never in the least bit remove that wrath of God to where we could say, honestly, it is finished. It will never be enough. If men go to hell forever because of their sins, how would you expect with a lifetime of good works if you could do it to erase your sin? Only the work of Christ. Think of it like this. Like one brother said, it's like trying to add your little touches to a master painting. Christ doesn't need your help. It's insulting to the beauty of what he did on the cross. It's like offering money to someone who's trying to give you a gift. It's insulting to them. It's offensive to them. I don't, I'm not looking for your money. It's a gift. That is the gospel. That's why it's good news, because it's free, because it's grace. These things become an abomination when they rob Jesus Christ of his glory. Lean upon Christ. It's not just offensive, but even the Bible says it's like an evil thing to God because it's pride. We don't see our own pride. We are so blind to our own pride. But when people are boasting in their works, it is the sin of pride. But Paul said, may I never boast in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my only ground of boasting. That's the gospel that I receive. That's the gospel that I preach to you, Corinthians. Hold fast to it. Boast only in Christ. Those are the people that are being saved. Those that are hopeless, trusting in Christ. He's their all in all. Let me, let me put it like this. The Bible says, Jesus said, to enter, enter the kingdom of heaven, you must become like a little child. What does that mean? I used to be confused and just think, you know, some people say, well, children are innocent. And I thought, no, they're not innocent. That does not fit. Children are naughty and wicked. And when they get strong and educated, they do all kinds of sin. They're not innocent. So why does Jesus say you must become like a little child? Not purity, not innocence. And then one day the Lord showed me helplessness. Children are helpless. They don't work. They don't have any plan. They can't provide for themselves. They can't do anything. They are totally dependent upon their parents to get dressed, to eat food. You neglect a child, the child will die. That's how you have to be before Jesus Christ. You have to say, Lord, I'm like a little child. I can give nothing to you. I can do no work. I can give you no reason to take me to heaven. I need you to wash away my sins. I need you to provide everything for me. 
the picture of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. They named that place, the Lord will provide. That's what happened at the cross. The Lord provided the answer. And at the resurrection, it was proven. Jesus Christ declared to be the Son of God with power. No other Savior. No other Son of God. No other God that became man. All of the other... You go to India, they exalt Krishna, Krishna, Krishna as their, their great hero. He didn't rise from the dead. He died. Buddha. People are hoping in Buddha and his wisdom and his path and his everything. They worship Buddha. He died and he's dead. Muhammad died. All of the others died. Only Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Not, not was taken away up into heaven like Elijah, just swifted away. No, he died and then he conquered death and proved it. He showed himself. There's a big difference. If he would have just disappeared, you might not know. But when God raised him up out of the tomb and showed him to his people, that was the answer. That's God's answer. This is the one you must trust. This is my son. Lean upon Christ. Just like putting money in the bank. You put money in the bank, why? Because you're afraid you'll lose it. You're afraid you might spend it. You're, you're afraid someone might steal it. So you put it in the bank. What does that mean? That means you trust that bank to keep your money safe. In the same way, that's what you do with your soul. You hand your soul to Jesus Christ and you say, Lord, I am trusting you to keep my soul safe. You are the bank for me. His resurrection, how is it insulted? I have to be brief here. I'll be out of time. His resurrection is insulted. People say they believe he rose on the third day. But then they continue to live in sin. Or they make excuses for those that are living in sin. You say, well, what is, what is my sinful habits, what is my sinful lifestyle or sinful choices have anything to do with the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Well, have you not read the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has raised you from the dead, if you're a believer. When someone puts their trust in Him, when someone looks to Christ, there is a miracle that has taken place. That same Holy Spirit power, the power to create the world, the power to make something out of nothing, the power to give life, it raised the body of Jesus Christ from the dead, glorified Christ, and he ascended. Glory. New life. And that's what the Bible says Christians have. Do you have new life? Do you say, oh, he died for me and he rose again. And yet you continue to live in sin. The same habits, the same sins, no change, nothing new in your life. You know, people make a lot of excuses. They don't really believe the Bible. They believe what they hear out on the street more than they believe the Bible. Let me give you an example. People will say, well, old habits die hard. Does the Bible say that? What does the Bible say? The Bible says, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. No, old habits die. They may die hard, but they do die when someone is born again. They're put to death. 
God has power to raise Jesus from the dead and that same power to raise you up, to be a new person, a new creation with a new desire, a new love, a new life. We don't want to insult the resurrection. You don't want to insult the resurrection by going around saying, I believe he rose from the dead. I really believe that. But it doesn't show in your life. It should show. There should be something that God has done miraculous. Now let me, let me test you on this, okay? Maybe some of you are starting to get a little question this a little bit. Wait a minute. Is this too strict? Is this really what the Bible says? Well, think about a simple example. If there was a man covered with sores, he has some disease, some leprosy, or some just terrible sores all over his body, and he's laying in the bed, and people come to his bedside, and they say, Brother, we're going to pray for you. And they put their hands on him. They say, Lord, heal this man. Lord, take away these sores. Lord, make his skin like the skin of a little child. Lord, heal him. And then they open their eyes. He's still covered with sores, and they start clapping their hands. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. God healed him. What would you think if you saw that? You would think that is sad. That is pathetic. Those people are rejoicing. It's almost insulting to that man in the bed. He's not healed. And this is real. People do this. I was in Bangladesh with a group of pastors. At the time, I did not really know them very well, but we went out to this village. There is a man, like the Bible says, he spoke with difficulty. He could barely speak, just mumble. You couldn't understand a word he said. He was old, white hair, white beard, and he looked so sad, and his eyes looked so heavy. And these pastors got around him, and they put their hands on his head, and they were saying, Say Jesus! Say hallelujah! And he was mumbling and mumbling. And then they started clapping and breaking out into hallelujahs and praise the Lord's. He wasn't healed. I felt such pain in my heart when I saw that. I knew it's a joke. That's not power. That's not life. That's not real. God's finger was not there. In the same way then, would it not be true to say that someone who has joined themselves to the living one, to the risen Savior, who continues in their old life, would it, would it not be fair to say that's a joke? That is not saving faith. I don't know many things, but I know that person has not gotten in touch with Jesus Christ. Because when I was saved, something happened in my life. Old things were torn out. God wouldn't let me live the same way anymore. If I went after sin, He stopped me. He corrected me. He purified me. He was jealous over me. The resurrection power is at work in every Christian. The same Christ that forgives you through His cross gives you power through His resurrection life to live for Him. To turn from sin. To say no to sin and no to the devil. No to yourself. Power. We did not see the resurrection then with our own eyes. We are not listed in 1 Corinthians 15 as those witnesses. We didn't see that. But we do see resurrection still today. When someone is saved, when someone is born again, things become new. Old things pass away. It's as if a new person has risen up from the grave. They were just a walking zombie before and now they love God. It's amazing. It's a miracle. There's only one explanation. The power of Jesus Christ. So my application is this. If you are lost 
and you've not grasped this message until today. You couldn't summarize the Bible. You don't know what it's all about. But today you've heard. Realize this is the most important thing for you. That Jesus Christ died for our sins. That he was risen on the third day. Realize now what life is all about. Realize now the way to heaven and lean upon it. It's what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. Not just to know it in your mind. Put your soul in the bank of Christ. Lean upon him with all your weight. No other props. Nothing else is necessary. Lord, I believe you. I trust you. And you will be saved. That is the promise of Jesus Christ. That whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast them out. Whoever entrusts himself to me, whoever leans upon me, they will not be disappointed. They will never be put to shame. All that trust... We are, we are, the, we are the believers in Jesus Christ. We are the trusters. We are the resters. We are the ones... We, we hope in him. We lay down in Jesus Christ in his finished work. And I would also say to you, if you're lost and you're a slave of sin and you're living in sin, sinful habits, sinful choices, sinful ways, you need to be raised from the dead. Come to Jesus Christ. Trust in him. The miracle happens for every person that believes in him. Those chains of sin are broken. Those burdens fall off your back when you go to Christ. Do you have to go to some holy place to be saved? No. Do you have to be in church? No. Do you have to go home and pray? No. You can trust in Christ right where you sit. Trusting in Christ is not about an action of the body. It's not about even the words of your mouth. It's leaning upon Him, what He's done. The good news is ready for all to receive. Believe Him. Trust Him. And the application, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, let us keep this. Let us guard this. This is the message. This is our hope. Not what we have done, what Christ has done. Not our power, His power. We need to guard it. We need to hold fast to it lest we drift away from it, lest we believe in vain. We need to stay in Christ and abide in Christ. I love what 1 John says. Let the things you heard from the beginning abide in you. You don't move on from the gospel. You cling to the gospel every day of the Christian life. This is where our joy comes from. You know, if you don't meditate upon the gospel... If you don't gaze upon Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, in his resurrection and ascension, you know what happens? You dry up. If you just gaze at yourself and your duties, if you just gaze at what you do or your resolutions, you dry up. We must not lean upon anything. Change life, I would say the application is this. If you're a child of God and you love him, and you know him. Remember today, the power of the resurrection defeats all sin. What is your sin? What do you need to put to death by God's grace? What do you need victory over? 
resurrection power. We are not those that settle for sin, that say, well, sin is just master over me. I'm just in a sinful nature. No, we are those that say, sin will not have dominion over us. We're not under law, we're under grace. I'm raised with Christ. The power of the resurrection is for me. Well, God has been pleased to speak to us this morning. It's his message. It's not not John's. He just brought it to us. God gave it. I want to say one thing. It's possible to take, when John goes down the list there, some examples of groups that insult the work of Christ. You could add a lot, a lot of, you could add, you could add hundreds of groups. And we need to realize this, you could add Lake Road Chapel. Because Lake Road Chapel is not the mediator between us and God. Only Christ is. And if you think, because you come and hear the gospel, and I go to a place where the real gospel is presented, that makes you right with God. You've just put something in the place of Christ. So these are not judgmental statements that John's making there about certain groups. It can be any group. 